0: Mary Roach is the author of Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. Her new nonfiction work is Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. Welcome to the program, Mary. Thank you, Rick. Mary, tell us a little bit about Stiff, and it seems that that really led to the writing of Spook, didn't it?
1: It absolutely did. Stiff is a book all about the... uh post-mortem careers of dead people, all the fun and interesting things that cadavers have gotten up to over the years, mostly in the name of science. Uh, but I did wander off. In a, one chapter, I was looking at the um, early efforts to pin down where is the soul in the body? Is it in the brain? Is it in the heart? And the, the early investigators were actually opening up bodies and, and looking for it as though it might be like a spleen, sort of a locatable, touchable entity. I also came across Duncan McDougall uh, in, when I was working on Stiff, and he's a man who he was a doctor from Haverhill, Massachusetts who tried to weigh people at the moment of death to see if the scale would go down just a little bit when their soul left. So uh, the, it, he was kind of the inspiration. I love that can-do spirit, you know, the we can take scientific method and prove anything.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background. It plays a little bit into this book. I'd like you to talk about yourself as a writer, as a science writer, as a journalist, as a scientist and then talk a little bit about your family history and how that plays into this book.
1: Sure. Man, you should have written that stuff down. <laughs> okay, as a as a science writer was that the first one? Yeah. Okay. I, as a uh, yeah, I started writing for Discover some years back. I have no science degree. I have a BA in psychology. I I'm, I'm not trained in any particular science, so I I, I consider myself a, a bit of an a bit of a bogus science writer because I'm not I'm not doing the really heavy science writing that uh, s- some of the you know members of the National Science Writers Association do. But I I'm drawn to science and I I love the world of science, the world of figuring things out, and the people involved in it and the scenes. I, I'm just fascinated by it. And so uh, I I wrote for Discover for many years. I still am a contributing editor there, and I. Uh, well, I think I'll always be writing medicine, medicine, science, health—that that whole field. But uh, I've always, in my writing, incorporated humor. And people have people asked me when Stiff came out. Well, oh, that was a clever tactic to employ humor to make people feel more comfortable with a, a morbid or scary subject. And uh, in fact, that's just my approach. I I do it because it's the only way I know how to write. Really. So that's uh, that's that's why the books came out. And again, and and with Spook, it's it's a book, you know, a funny book about the afterlife. You don't get that very often and uh it's just it's just the way I have fun doing my job, really.
0: Tell us a little bit about how your family and your family beliefs figure into this book.
1: Sure. I was raised as a Catholic. My mother was a very devout catholic and she would she she tried very very hard to make me into a devout cla- catholic she would read the bible to me in the evenings and uh, before when i was uh, lying in bed and she'd show me the you know the the color plates that would come every three or four hundred pages in the bible and i even as a, a child i remember looking at say the the image of the trumpeters and the walls of jericho crumbling and i re- you know remember thinking well maybe there was an earthquake right at that moment. Coincidentally, that's when the walls fell. I mean, how do we really know? You know, I didn't disbelieve, but I wanted a little proof. I just wanted some, something solid to stand on. And I guess that has always been my approach. It drove my mother crazy. She'd say, you just have to have faith, Mary. You just have to have faith. And I'd say, but I don't have faith. I don't know where do you go and buy faith. I don't have any faith.
0: Tell us a little bit about how you selected the topics first Spook. There's a lot of things you could address in the afterlife. What brought you to the topic? That, sure, you,
1: I had to. I, I wanted to limit it to people who were trying to get evidence or proof, really trying to pin it down. I did not want to cover, you know, j- different cultural beliefs and approaches. I mean, that would be a twenty-volume set. I mean, there's just so much you could you could write about in, in the uh, on, on the topic of the soul or the afterlife. And I, so I really kept it to people tr- people engaged in the pursuit of of evidence or proof, and of course that that leads you to a, a wide variety of. I mean, you've got near death experience researchers, you've got people testing mediums in labs. Historically, uh, all kinds of fun stuff with the spiritual days of spiritualism and ectoplasm. People trying to prove that ectoplasm was the real deal. Even the, you know the Sorbonne University in Paris, Scientific American people were really uh, believed that this was evidence, you know, physical evidence of spirits. Uh, So uh, like stiff. this is a book that is all over the map. Uh, India, I spent some time with somebody who investigates cases of reincarnation, supposed reincarnation. Uh, So that's how I narrowed it down, just the pursuit of evidence or proof, usually scientists, not always.
0: Tell us a little bit about your stint investigating reincarnation. You plunged into a really unfamiliar cultural milieu there, didn't you?
1: I absolutely did I spent uh, I spent a week on the road mostly in rural villages I was traveling with a a, a very kind man in his 60s Dr Kirti Rawat who has uh, two PhDs and also writes poetry uh, a lovely kind of lyrical man uh, we came from s- such completely different backgrounds totally different personalities that at times it felt a little like a bad arranged marriage uh, I remember the first day uh, I arrived there. We were walking along the streets of New Delhi, and this rat dropped from seemingly nowhere, probably an awning overhead on a building, tr- dropped down right in front of my face. I could feel the breeze as it went by, I landed on my shoe, and scurried away. A large rat. And, of course, I screamed because it was you know, uh, an alarming thing to have a rat drop upon you. And Dr. Rawat, although he was startled had a completely different reaction. He said, Mary, you are blessed. The rat is the conveyance of Lord Ganesha. Uh, uh, So for him, it was this wonderful omen, and I was truly, uh, uh, I should have been delighted. So, yes, it was was an interesting week.
0: Tell us a little bit about how reincarnation is viewed and how they're trying to pin it down, get data that proves it.
1: Yes, these really the the science is almost more like police detective work. What happens typically a young boy or girl 2 3 years old will as soon as they start to talk will mention things people places that don't fit the life that he's now in and the parents will interpret that as oh, this must have been someone or something from a past life. And word spreads very quickly through the villages to the next few villages. Oh, there's a little boy who seems to have lived before. And the villagers will start asking around, well, you know, who died right around the time he or she was born? And do these things that the little boy said, do they fit this family, et cetera, et cetera. And then the families will meet and compare notes and you know, these are not notes that have been taken down in any systematic way, uh, but they'll they'll begin talking and they'll sort of nominate a, f- a family who's lost someone as you know this is the reincarnation. And Doctor Rawat hears about these cases. Often they make the news, and he'll he'll he tries to get into the scene as early as he can. Uh, hopefully, even before they've gone out searching for the, you know, the the previous personality. That's actually what they call it, the PP. Previous personality, the PP. <laughs> and so Dr. Rawat then takes notes and he interviews everybody who heard the boy talking. He writes down, what did the boy say exactly? Please tell me ex- only what you heard him say, not what you heard other people talking about. And he, you know, he tries to establish exactly what the little boy said that seemed to suggest he had lived before somewhere else. And then he goes and finds the previous family. And who've usually by now met the little boy. And if anybody had recognized, if the boy recognized people from his past and said, "Oh, you were my uncle," or "You used to be my brother," and anything like that, he'll jot that down. And he videotapes these uh, uh, interviews. And he's, you know, he's looking. He's really just looking for a case where everything fits. It's very hard to find a case where everything fits. Frequently, two or three things will seem to fit, and then there'll be some things that don't quite fit. Uh, and uh, so it's this case we were on was not a particularly strong case, the one we were investigating.
0: What I found interesting was uh, Ian Stevenson writing an article about reincarnation for JAMA, I, it, it, the Journal of the American Medical Association. It just kind of boggled my mind that they would publish that kind of thing. And I wonder if you'd care to talk about the different cultures between the believers and the skeptics and the that you met both didn 't mm-hmm. shoot, so tell me a little sure. bit about comparing and contrasting those two
1: sure the well it the it's by the end of the book, I really came to feel that the thing that most influences people 's beliefs is what hap- what has happened to them personally uh, or to someone that they know very well personally, and that they, they really the believers and the skeptics can say what they want but people people pretty much stick to what they feel based on their own uh experiences the, and it's very hard to shake people at, from which side of the spectrum they're on it's interesting i, f- I think of myself as is as, as in between the skeptor- skeptics and the believers but it's interesting because the response to spook has been such that i by, the, the skeptics have referred to me as being um far too patient and gullible even, and and the believers are re- rejecting me, you know, as a as a hard hard-minded skeptic. So I, I, it's interesting how people perceive you because I I, I try very hard. I mean, I, I'm open-minded, in fact, to the possibility of there being something more. I was just the the focus of the book was on evidence, so that's what I was examining. But, um, and I and I think almost everyone. On both sides of that spectrum, sees themselves as right in the middle and very reasonable. I think I don't think that believers see people who are who are convinced that they know for sure that there is an afterlife or that they've there are angels or whatever their belief is. I think that they see themselves as an open-minded person capable of critical thought. And likewise, I think most people on the far end of the uh, skeptics. Uh, Far into the spectrum where the skeptics are, I think they uh, see themselves also as open-minded. And um, I think everybody sees themselves as right in the middle and perfectly fair. Uh, Whereas I'm convinced I'm the only one standing right in the middle.
0: (laughs) Now, a lot of the scientists have come to start using um, the fuzziness of embracing the fuzziness of quantum theory and sometimes information theory Mm -hmm. to allow them to accept some of these more far out ideas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. The people you met who did that.
1: Sure. I spent some time with a Duke University professor who is in fact an MD, but he has a background in consciousness theory and quantum mechanics, and he has come up with this project he would like to undertake, which involves uh, a box, an enclosed system, and an organism that would die in the box, and then he would, using an array of energy sensors in a very, very picogram sensitive scale. He's basically looking to prove that the energy of consciousness would persist after death, which if you look at you know the law of thermodynamics, you know that that makes sense. Energy is, you know, never neither created nor destroyed. Anyway, if we talk to these people and it's 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 something that isn't far-fetched. I mean, what form that energy would take, whether, you know, it's not like you'd be a pers- an invisible person floating around. Who knows what that energy would be? But I remember talking to a physicist by the name of Len Feingold, and, and I mentioned some of these cardiologists who would quote quantum mechanics as, uh, you know, as supporting their theory that the consciousness could, you know, persist after you die. And uh, he said, please be careful, there are a lot of people who assume that just because we don't understand something, it's quantum mechanics, and I think that that I fell into that trap a little bit myself because I don't have a background in quantum mechanics. So I'm really at the mercy of someone explaining it to me. And if they say, "Well, this makes sense in terms of quantum theory," then I, you know, I, I kind of listen to them and think, "Wow, really?" So, so to you it makes perfect sense that you know consciousness is not limited to the human brain or mind that we you know we could persist in some uh, some sort of fart of energy floating around <laughs> uh but it but it is a very uh i found myself thinking that if we do ever have an answer that's what it, that's where it will come from but i don't know if i'm right in thinking that because i don't have a strong enough background in quantum mechanics or theoretical physics to really know what I'm talking about. But I say it anyway.
0: One of the more interesting parts of this book deals with spiritualism. And what's interesting about spiritualism, at least to me when you talk about it, is how widely accepted it was for a fact. And even in retrospect, it still seems to make sense. Back then they were just discovering the basics of physics. So Mm -hmm. of course this idea that spiritualism, that spirits were some form of energy that could persist well, would sure. make
1: sense. Sure. It was, it was really the peak. 1920s were was a period of time when you could look at the New York Times index and find entries on ectoplasm, on seances and mediums. And really that was, you know, it was right on the heels of the wireless telegraph, uh, of the telephone, of electricity, all these things people had been asked to accept that, you know, the voices could fly through the air, and no one quite understood how it worked, but there it was, and it worked, and it was true. So it wasn't that much of a leap, I think, for people to accept the possibility that a medium could be acting as a receiver from uh, for people who were in another world, and these that voices could be you know, beamed into a medium's head and then passed on to uh, people at a seance. I, I think people were, you know, just their heads were spinning from everything that had been coming their way in, in terms of the communication and the energy theory and, and like you know, electricity. I mean, it was just, it was all seemingly witchery to them, I think.
0: Well, in a sense, spiritualism still persists in um, what we call now, only now we call it electro-voice phenomena, EVP.
1: Mm, yes, that's right. Uh, electronic voice phenomena. Phenomenon is uh, people go around with tape recorders. People in amateur ghost hunting groups, for the most part, but EVP is sort of their own universe. There are EVP groups all over the world. Uh, they uh, take tape recorders and go into a supposedly haunted area and play and push record. And then, when they play it back, even though there were no sounds uh, that anyone could hear with the human ear, there'll be odd sounds, and you can sometimes they sound like voices and people think that that is yeah that that is uh, a, a spirit communicating and it's interesting because every form of technology along the way has been the new hope that we will now be able to communicate whether it's a, you know a phonograph or a telephone or a um tape recorders video cameras answering machines a spell checker there was a case of someone believed a spirit was communicating via his spell checker so it, it uh, and now digital cameras are now much more popular than ordinary uh, cameras for four of these ghost hunting groups. So it it seems that uh, in, infra, infrared photography. Every time something new comes along, it's the great hope of uh, ghost hunting groups that this will this will be the one that will give us a, the access we haven't been able to gain.
0: Now, is anybody getting email from the dead?
1: Yes. Oh, yes, yes. There are there are cases of of people getting email. From the dead, there was a case of a yeah. I, I forget the guy's name, and someone, someone, some cruel person was saying, telling him, you know, you're going to die, you're going to have a heart attack, and it was signed from somebody who had died uh, in the past. And, and this was this was some this was in the world of EVP. It was some somebody involved in uh, in that world. Yes, there's there have been cases of email.
0: Tell us a little bit about ghost hunting. Ghosts have an interesting history. some of the oldest ghost stories are ancient Roman ghost stories where somebody will have a haunting in a house and then um, the ghost hunter will be called in to find out what's going on and usually what happens is they look for signs and find a a dead body in a place where it's not supposed to be, just needs to be buried. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about how ghost hunting works these days and what's interesting to me too is the detective story component and you have an interesting detective ghost story in your book.
1: Oh, you mean the Chafin Will case? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. The Chafin Will case. That was a wonderful case. I came across this. Uh, Sometimes there'll be compendiums of evidence for the afterlife. And one case that's frequently cited is this case of a, this was a North Carolina dirt farmer, very poor man, uh, whose uh, father had died and left his entire state to one son. Uh, not the son in question. So this the the, the uh, son who had been cheated out of the inheritance. He one night he dreams that his father comes to him and, as a ghost, wearing his old overcoat, saying, "In the pocket of my old overcoat, you will find some information about a second will." So he wakes up, this farmer, and he uh, tracks down the coat, the overcoat, and in the pocket is this little slip of paper that directs him then to his daddy's old Bible. And in there, lo and behold, on the page that he uh, had been directed to, there is the second will, which directs that the money, in fact, be left to all the sons. So there's the second will now. And the widow of the son who got everything, of course, contests it. It goes to court. It's a huge deal because we're talking about feuding family members, large sums of money, and ghosts. So this is, you know, the media comes from all over. Uh, The court, in fact, uh, decides that that the, the second will is, in fact, the real deal and awards the, the splits up the money to everybody. I went back to this town. I tracked down the grandson of uh, the man who'd had the dream, who'd seen the ghost. And I brought up a forensic document examiner with me and we tracked, we found both of the wills. I'm not going to give it away, but it was a fascinating case.
0: Tell us a little bit too about professional psychics. You talked to a couple. Uh, did you talk to John Edward?
1: No, uh, I was, well, I was actually looking at mediums. Mm-hmm. Psychics are people who just, t- you can tell you what's going on in your life now, possibly what will be going on. Mediums specifically are people who okay. put you in touch with somebody you've lost, somebody dead, uh, someone in the beyond. I, and I did spend time with the medium, she's the medium in the television show Medium, which is a, a quite, a, I guess, a, a, a hit show, Patricia Arquette. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. We got an Emmy for that show. I have not actually seen it, but anyway, the, the medium who inspired the show medium. I feel like I'm saying medium over and over. The medium in the show, the medium is in fact the medium Allison Dubois. She was being tested in Gary Schwartz's lab, at the University of Arizona. Gary Schwartz has a lab called the Human Energy Systems Laboratory, which he he covers everything from alternative healing methods to uh, mediums and Alison Dubois was quite intriguing to me. I mean, she's supposed to be one of the best mediums, and she was a combination. She Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the experience I had. I was, after she, she was done with her experiment, you know, she was being tested in the, in the context of a study. She I asked her to, you know, was my mother she was getting anything from my mother? Because at one point she'd interrupted the proceedings saying she was getting crosstalk from my mother. That My mother was butting in and... <laughs> Ruining her line of communication. So, so I said, well, what is Claire trying to say? What is Claire so urgently trying to get across that she's interrupting the proceedings? And uh, so Alison Dubois said, well, she 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 said a lot of things that were quite vague, like family family gatherings are important, a ring, I'm getting a ring on a finger, a cat in a window you know, all of these could be true, but also true of just about anyone. And then, so I thought, oh yeah, all right, whatever. And then I was walking, I walked across the room and I was talking to the researcher and then she was still sitting on the couch and she, she said, I'm getting an hourglass that you turn over. Does your brother have one? And my brother has a collection of hourglasses, which is a pretty obscure fact that I I think almost no one knows about him because it's a collection he doesn't you do much with it; just sits in the closet. Anyway, I, I, thought, I thought, well, that's pretty impressive. But then, I of course immediately from there began looking at the absurdity of my mother communicating to me. This is supposed to be about me, and we're talking about my brother. You know, why are we always so why are we talking about my brother? What is this to be? This is supposed to be about me. Why are you Why are you mentioning my brother? It seemed such an odd thing to have communicated, and I was. I'm just puzzled by the you know if mediums do have some you know if they're they have some sensitivity that the rest of us don't why is that why do things come through in these maddening cryptic manners why can't they just say hi it's it's your mom i can prove it to you by telling you your social security number you know or your address you know they never but that was an intriguing thing that she said nonetheless and that it was so so very specific i don't know know.
0: you know the concept of Souls after death is pretty much just as you explained it, just a floating personality, free floating personality in Mm -hmm. a balloon that can maybe not talk or but send thoughts
1: and knock things over and open doors. Yeah. Uh,
0: uh, Did you meet anybody in your travels who thought of it in a different way? It seems to me that perhaps you know, souls could be evenly distributed, they could be mixed up, so that well, they
1: you... Yeah, they, uh, I love... Thomas Edison, in fact, had, if you read his diaries, he thought that when people died, they became swarms of life units, not a ghost-like blob, but little swarms of little, tiny, infinitesimally small life units, and he was attempting, in his final years, to build basically an amplifier or megaphone because he felt that they it must be very hard to communicate if you're that tiny it was sort of like in horton hears a who when you couldn't hear the who's because they were so small they needed a couple more voices and he so he had he was at work on on a, on an amplifier he actually explained his idea that they just you know we need to just boost the energy that they have so that we could understand them or hear them and so that was that was an interesting uh, concept of it, these, and he, you know, he felt that the, the, and when you die, you're sort of a loose conglomeration or swarm of these life units, and then eventually, you know, you coalesce and become someone else.
0: Well, now that's really interesting. Does did you meet anybody else who had that kind of idea in the current day who was trying to communicate with, like, I guess maybe just bits of the information of, of people left over.
1: Um, no, most of the really colorful. Visions of of spirits or the afterworld came much much earlier. Nowadays, it's fairly uniformly just seemingly a personality that's invisible that is communicating via a, a medium. I I think uh, I I can't think of any contemporary concept of 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 spirit that that's uh, my favorite was a uh, Doctor Reverend Owen. Uh, who, who was quoted in a New York Times article uh, about he, he had this very specific view of the afterlife uh, that included how uh, he said uh, that spirits uh, that the pe- people could uh, dead people could ride around in chariots if need be though they don't need them sometimes it's practical uh, and they were. they also they preferred to use speed boats and they would uh, but he said great ter- care must be taken because you're using a rudder on air instead of water and it's very, very sensitive and so you had to really take care when you were flying around in your speedboat. I just love this this, uh, this reality. And he said, he said physicians will, although there are no illnesses, physicians will be directed to other avenues for their research so they will be kept busy and feel needed and uh, strong businessmen were needed. You know, it was just this, this place where everybody felt useful and had a purpose and had all kinds of recreational activities and flowers, he said, would... Not ever wilt, but just fade away. So that was the. A... But he didn't really actually describe what the the, ent- the the person or entity would look like who was in the chariot. I don't know exactly what.
0: As you mentioned earlier, this book is funny. It's very very funny. I'd like to talk to you about this, some of the uh, devices you use to create humor. Do you have specific techniques? There's one thing I noticed you did a couple of times, where you'll create a euphemism for Mm -hmm. maybe something that's slightly unpleasant or or distasteful to speak of, and then you'll recycle that euphemism in uh, the context of where it's more normally heard, Mm -hmm. so so to speak. uh, Could you tell a little bit about, do you go back and re-inject humor into this? Uh,
1: Well, I do. I try to write it funny the first time around, but I frequently feel that I've failed and I put myself back in it and try to punch it up a little bit and think of ways to make it a little more entertaining. I, co- I write with a constant fear that I'm always about to lose my reader. And I feel that every paragraph has to either be imparting really interesting information or at least entertaining people in some way. And I get very antsy when I'm having to explain something scientifically complicated, because that's the hardest part for me to be funny. When I'm trying to get across technical or scientific information and yet not lose my tone, my sense of humor. And sometimes those are the passages that I'll go back to again and again and try to think of just some way to lighten it up and break it up a little so that people don't bog down in the, uh, in the explanation. But humor is... Uh, part of where the humor comes from is in the research. I am always looking for uh, source material, primary source material, for the most part, I don't. For the most part, I'm not using other people's books about the subject. I'm looking for old journal articles, old uh, the old senses of hallucinations that the Society for Psychical Research kept. I, I want the re, you know the the core stuff that people start with, and some of that stuff, particularly historically, because the way it's written or the way it's organized or presented or described is is very entertainingly funny, just because it's so you know it's in the context of another era and that people spoke in a different way often very formally or uh, and i that that's the stuff i'm looking for and i will reject two or you know if, if there are five or six things i could use as source material for a chapter i will reject three of them if they're just they're not doing anything for me <laughs> out they go so part of it's the, part of it's in the research which i think people don't r- realize uh humor comes so much from what you've been able to track down and i will keep pushing and pushing if i don't find a funny or or entertaining source uh i mean just ditch that little topic that little side you know side trip that i was going to go on for example reincarnation i found the old this old vedic manuscript the ordinances of manu which was this wonderful compilation of specifically what you will be forced to live again as you know if you you know if you trespass you know if you steal xyz you will become a heron and if you uh violate the guru's couch i don't know what that means uh you will become an, uh, such and such there was this yeah, i don't know farak uh, kumak i don't know an eater of vomit i mean it was this very very uh very very detailed and specific but you know uh, sort of a legal document uh, that i found And it, of course that was you know i was so excited to find that because uh, it would really just bring things alive in a way that a someone else's book about the Indian view of reincarnation wouldn't do. I, you know, I always want to go back to the, to the original material.
0: The most interesting and entertaining and engaging character in all of your fiction is you.
1: <laughs>
0: Definitely. I'm <laughs> fiction I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you handle this as a writer.
1: You mean how? I, uh...
0: How how do you feel about doing it? making that the case that's Mm. that's a conscious decision is it a conscious decision I mean it's got to be yes uh
1: yeah well uh, yes I I think um I I need all the entertaining characters I can get and if I can be one if I can be of service to the book then I then I will but I um I've actually over the years tried to keep myself out of it a little more um because I think it's it's sometimes too easy to to fall back on yourself as the Provider of humor or character I, I try to find other characters and people to, to to uh keep the reader interested, but I won't hesitate to employ myself if need be.
0: <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh some of the uh i the techniques you use to do that uses a self deprecating humor mm-hmm. and also you you approach things, and this is i think what makes your book so engaging to a a wide variety of readers, is you approach things as not being an expert.
1: Oh, true. Very true. I I, I approach things, I try to approach things from about the same level as the reader. And in that way, I think I'm never going to get so involved in it that I'm assuming a level of understanding that doesn't exist. So uh, I actually don't think it's too much of a liability, to not have a background, say, in, my, in this case, in quantum mechanics. Though it was a source of frustration, I would have liked to understand a little bit better what people were talking about and not keep saying, please repeat what you said and pretend you were talking to a seventh grader. I don't understand what negentropy is. Please, just once more, take me through it. Um, but I'm... Yeah, it's, uh, it's always a bit of a challenge.
0: I recently got a new book that's just come out called The Briefer History of Time. Huh, that's great. <laughs> and and it's by Melard Now and, and Hawking and they've gone through and put in more pictures, take, streamlined the text and updated it of course. Mhm. And it made me think that about what's going on in science writing in general. Mhm. Because you have a book also here that's just wildly entertaining, extremely well written and and very scientific, but do you worry a little bit about the nature of science writing, the state yes, of it?
1: Yes, I do, and I worry that I am contributing in my way to the dumbing down of science writing, and I sometimes wish that, on the one hand, I'm happy to have the word science on the back of the book, as in, you know, what category, what part of the bookstore do we put this book, but I can't help but imagine real science writers thinking, oh, here we go, pre-digesting, dumbing it down, making it more accessible. And I'm not sure, on the one hand, you are engaging a broader audience with scientific concepts and maybe making it a little less scary for them, a little more palatable, and that's a good thing. But if all science writing ends up there, then, you know, we're lost. I mean, I, I think, uh, so, I, I yeah, I do, I do worry about that a little bit uh, and my role in it.
0: Your book goes to the heart, really, of what the culture wars in America are currently about. It's the collision of faith and science. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you encountered any resistance or if you are from either side, either the faithful or the scientific, in your approach this to this subject, in your willingness to just approach this subject.
1: I have not yet, but bear in mind the book has only been out for two weeks. I, I have not yet been... Um, criticized. I, I think that I will be taken to task probably. Uh, I know there's a review coming out in Discover Magazine, which I, I, I'm guessing might be... Isn't uh, that the
0: magazine you used to write for?
1: Oh, yeah, it is. Oh. That's no guarantee. You're not, nothing, <laughs> you're never safe. Uh, I, I could imagine them taking me to task. Stiff was uh, criticized by um, the New England Journal of Medicine wrote a, a n- negative review. Uh, there was a medical... Uh, in In England a doll ramper, I believe his name is i believe he's an m d but he also is a book reviewer and a pundit uh and and they have been less fond of my work than than the average person so yes i have i have been criticized uh and uh, certainly people who believe- people who are themselves very sure of their faith or the fact that there's there's an afterlife um they feel that I'm an idiot for even bothering to pursue this, or I, so. Yeah, I, I think I do. Yeah, I get, I get some um, negative reactions from people on either side of that divide. But yes, I, th- I think it is really. This is a time when people are rejecting critical thought and and just uh, just deciding. Well, it's okay to just believe what you believe, and my just belief, personal belief as truth with a capital T, which is sort of almost medieval. I mean, it's. Uh, kind of, it's a scary time for me. One of the
0: one of the things you do real very well in this book is to reconcile those two uh, extremes. To to mm-hmm. only look at the facts, and yet you have a lot of room for the faith of the believer. The the I want to believe set.
1: Well, because I I am at heart one of the I want to believe set. I'm just one of the I want to believe, but I can't quite bring myself and and i i like to think that i'm not that i'm i've got a lot of company where i stand i think a lot of people believe in that way that you believe without really wanting to put money on it and i think that's a really common way to feel about these things and that you 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 want to believe and and you're open to believing and part of that is i i think accepting the shortcomings of science so far science that perhaps you know it's, it's almost arrogant in a way to think that we as human beings including our scientists know everything and can explain everything that's out there and everything that happens I, I think uh, that uh, there's still there's still plenty of things for us to figure out and and why wouldn't there be
0: we've been speaking with Mary Roach Her new book is Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. Thanks for speaking with us, Mary.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.